Hello, everybody, and welcome to this week's edition of the About to Review podcast, here to amplify diverse voices in media. I'm your host, as always, that guy named John. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on your podcast platform of choice, whatever you're listening to it on right now. It is available on most all of the platforms. So make sure to subscribe. Also, follow the podcast on social media at About to Review. You can also go to abouttoreview.com for full links to the show notes and guests, as well as send me an email if you would like to, to the show, abouttoreview at gmail.com. If you have questions, comments, or things that you would like to hear me talk about, you can do that as well. On this week's episode, I am going to be doing some catch-up because, as my listeners know, kind of have been taking some time off, so I'm getting back into the groove of things. So there will be three uh, reviews on this week's episode, The Harder They Fall, which is on Netflix currently, West Side Story, which opens on December 10th uh, in theaters, and I believe same-day streaming as well, uh, and also Tick, Tick, Boom, which is on Netflix. So all three of those reviews will be on this week's episode, but of course, before we get into those, we'll go to the original theme song created by Damien Randall of Ill-Mannered Media. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a treat. One thing at the top of the show that I wanted to mention before going into the reviews for this week's episode, uh, this past weekend on November 27th, I was invited to be a part of a really, really cool one-day workshop that was hosted by an organization we have locally called Rising Reels, which is started by Tina Griffin along with a few other folks who are on their board. And it was this really cool, like I said, one-day event, one-day workshop where kids got to come in and learn different skills as to what it would take to start their career, kind of start their filmmaking career. And this is from Rising Reels's, Rising Reels's, that seems weird, from their website. Uh, this is their vision, and I'm just going to read it so I can make sure to get it completely right and give them some, some credit. So their vision, uh, Rising Reels is committed to making filmmaking experiences accessible. We emphasize underrepresented voices and stories. Our programs are located within the communities we serve and are community-driven. And their goal states, Rising Reels will provide a thriving and growing legacy where BIPOC youth will mentor one another and share their unique stories through the art of filmmaking. So as soon as I was asked to be a part of that workshop uh, a few weeks ago, I immediately jumped on it. Because that is the whole reason I do this show, or at least one of the main reasons I do this show, is to, again, amplify diverse voices, go to things like this, you know, really connect with, especially the BIPOC community and the youth, you know, to let them know kind of what this career could look like. And so I was asked, asked to be a part of it, and I was on a panel where I talked about what it was like being a film critic and also, they drew on my experiences of what it was like going to film festivals all over the place. Remember film festivals? Those used to be a thing. 
that I used to do and other people used to do, and hopefully I will get to do them again soon. So seeing all of these, you know, young folks at this workshop who got the chance to get on stage, talk to directors, talk to actors, get direction and acting support, you know, for these scenes that they were given was really cool. There were lighting techs there. There were cinematographers there who went over, you know, the rule of three and the grid and how to frame your shots. There was a stunt choreographer there and a fight choreographer there. So it was just overall, oh, and then an amazing uh, makeup artist was also there and talked about the importance of doing makeup on different shades of folks and working with your lighting tech and working with your cinematographer of how to do their makeup and how they need to be lit in certain ways. Overall, it was just a really, really fun event. And to see that empowering, you know, that empowerment of these kids who are like, okay, I like movies. What would it take for me to actually be involved in making them in some aspect or another? So definitely check out Rising Reels. Their website is rising-reels.org. They're local to King County. Uh, their next program, I think, is going to be in the summer. Obviously, none of us know what things are going to look like in the summer with everything going on. But I believe that is when Trina uh, and Abby are planning their next program. And I hope to be involved in it. I hope to be asked back. I think that would be great. Um, so, yeah. So definitely give them a follow on social media. I will put their links in the description of the episode below as well. So again, Rising Reels, really great organization. So go support them. And this is also their first workshop with industry professionals coming in and working with the youth. So again, super proud that I got to be a part of that. And thank you to Trina and Abby and all of the panelists and all of the professionals who were a part of that day. And especially thanks to the kids and their parents who supported them in their passion. So, okay. Uh, moving on to the first review of today's episode. And that is going to be The Harder They Fall, directed by James Samuel. And this is only James Samuel's second feature movie that he has directed. Uh, and his first one that he did called They Die by Dawn back in 2013 is pretty much the exact same movie that we got in The Harder They Fall uh, with the same problems that the first one had in 2013, They Die by Dawn. So uh, what is The Harder They Fall? This is a hyper-fictionalized account of real historical black figures in <laughs> history coming together in this showdown, in this manufactured story that James Samuel and oof, the other screenplay, the other person credited with the screenplay, Bose Yakin. No idea how to pronounce that. I am sorry if I butchered that. Uh, basically, yeah. So they take real historical figures, real black cowboys and lawmen of the Old West and put them all together. Um, here is the thing. Why? Why do that? And not only why do that, why do that twice? James Samuel, because you did this in 2013 with They Die by Dawn. So when talking about these historical figures, you have people like Nat Love, Mary Field, a.k.a. Stagecoach Mary, Jim Beckworth, Bill Pickett, all of these real people, Bass Reeves, 
Like these were real people, real historical people, some of which did not live very long. And so we do not have a lot of stories about them. Um, I mean, the main character, or at least one of the main characters, one of the driving forces of this whole movie is you have, and I just, it, okay, you have Idris Elba playing Rufus Buck. He is the big bad of all of this. He is the one that, you know, the main, other main character, Nat Love, a.k.a. Jonathan Majors, who is one of my favorite actors, uh, Jonathan Majors is going after with his group. Uh, Rufus Buck in real life died when he was like 18. And you have Idris Elba doing this character. So again, this is the choice. That was a choice they made. My biggest issue with this movie, and like I said before, why do this? Why take historical black figures when you have an opportunity to show real stories of these people whose lives are legendary, at least some of them. Like I said, some of these characters died very young. Some of them we just do not have that much information about. Some of them... The most information we have about them are from their own autobiographies, which this is the old West. It was made on embellishing things. But what they chose to do instead of doing a movie with historical actor or with historical figures, they made this Avengers style. We need to gather up all these people and go after the big bad Thanos, a.k.a. Idris Elba, a.k.a. Rufus Buck. And it, it just bothered me. It bothered me so much. And again, James Daniel did this already with They Die by Dawn, which had a lot of these same historical figures coming together in, in an Old West town where they have this shootout because they're all wanted criminals. And the last one standing gets the $100,000 bounty that, is, that they would be able to collect from the other people that they had killed I just do not understand it. Um, there are literally thousands of Western movies with white people, with made-up characters, and you can do whatever you want. You can just make stuff up. You can real. You can use real ones also if you want to go that route. You can use the Doc Holidays. You can use the Wild Bills. Sure, but there are literally thousands of movies and TV shows, Western TV shows with white people where they could just make stuff up. If this movie, if The Harder They Fall, had just been an amazing movie with black cowboys about the black cowboys of the time in the Old West, because there's a huge history there of black cowboys in the Old West that never really gets talked about. Do that movie. Why give them the historical names of figures and make it this Avenger style of like, we need to all come together. That never happened. Ever. There are no historical documents that this happened. That any of these folks interacted. But in two movies that James Samuel, the director, did, he made that choice. If the first one was a proof of concept, they'd die by dawn. Of being like, hey, this is an idea. This is a historic, these are historical figures. I want to make this movie and get some interest in it and get some interest in black cowboys so that maybe my dream is to do another black cowboy movie. You did it, James. You did it. You, you, you had that proof of concept. And it is not like his first movie in 2013 did not have anybody in it. It had a whole bunch of people in it. 
Rosario Dawson, Giancarlo Esposito, the late Michael K. Williams, unfortunately, passed away recently. Jesse Williams, Isaiah Washington, Harry Lennox. I mean, it just, Eric Badu was in it. Like, it was a huge movie. And, and, and let me rephrase. It had a huge cast. It was not a huge movie. It did not really do well. And it kind of just disappeared. But he made, as far as a proof of concept movie of black cowboys, you did it. You made it. It was only an hour long. So it was, I mean, again, that, that weird kind of obviously longer than a short film, but not quite as long as a feature film. But he did it. And then in fast forward to 2021, and he does the same movie kind of again with, again, a star-studded cast. This cast is ridiculous. It has so many amazing people in it. Why not just make it a movie then about black cowboys? It, it just, it, at best, it is disingenuous. At worst, it is offensive. You took an opportunity to show black cowboys in the Old West, and this is what you did with it? You created these fictionalized storylines of these real people. Why? I, I, I just kept thinking that the whole time. And frankly, one of the most, if not the most offensive thing about this movie, I guess I should talk first before I go into that. Uh, this movie looks pretty. It looks well done. It is shot well. The landscapes are cool. The landscapes actually are really, really nice. The set designs are very simple, but that is okay because it is the old West. When you look at the classic Western movies, the set designs were also really simple. And full disclosure, not that I was a part of it, those set designs were used by hundreds of Western movies. So when they would build these old West towns, film production crews were just rolling in there the whole time. So that part, the scenery, like the buildings, everything was pretty loose. It was pretty shabby, but it made sense. That part made sense. It looked good. And I will give it another uh, flower here. The performances were also good. I did not have a problem with the performances. I did not really have a problem with the cast, except <laughs> what I'm going to get to now which is the most offensive part of this movie uh, to me, Zazie Beetz playing Mary Fields. Mary Fields, otherwise known as Stagecoach Mary, is a pivotal historical figure when it comes to black empowerment among women of that time. She was a former slave. She became the first U.S. mail carrier, like U.S.M.A.I.L. mail carrier, like, first woman, U.S. mail carrier, courier, carrier, carrier, same thing. Her life is legendary. There are stories of her when, her, when the horses that she was driving for, for the U.S. mail, when it was too snowy, when it was a storm, she left them there, bagged up the mail, and carried it through snowstorms herself. And this is not the old, old West where these are just legends like Pecos Bill or anything or Paul Bunyan. No, she worked for the government. Like this is documented. Like these things happened. And stagecoach Mary, six feet tall, dark skinned, 200 pound 
powerful black woman. And when I say powerful, when she was living in Montana for a long period of her life, there was a running bet that she put out there that she could knock out any person with one punch and that she could take a punch. These are documented things that happened. She did it multiple times that dudes in the Old West, you know, post-Civil War era, they're like, I, I, I could take this woman. She's just a woman. Who cares that she is six feet tall and 200 pounds? So they would take this bet and she would punch them and knock them out in one punch. So who do we get to play? This six foot, dark skinned, 200 pound woman? Zazie Beats, a light skinned woman at about five, six, and maybe a buck 15. That is so offensive. And James Samuels did this again. In his first movie, They Die by Dawn, who played Stagecoach Mary? Erica Badu. Do I love Erica Badu? Absolutely. Should she be Stagecoach Mary? Absolutely not. Should Zazie Beats be Stagecoach Mary? Absolutely not. Do you know who should be Stagecoach Mary? Leslie Jones. Leslie Jones is six feet tall. I'm not going to say how much she weighs because I do not know how much she weighs. But a six foot tall, strong, powerful, dark skinned woman. And they made the choices they make. Do not understand that at all. Um, I will give some flowers to um, Amber Charday Robinson, who played Stagecoach Mary on TV show Hell on the we- Hell on Wheels. She was in like five episodes or so. She is darker skinned. She is taller. So at least in one portrayal of Stagecoach Mary, they kind of got it right. Um, and she did a good job on that. I mean, she only had five episodes, but she did a good job. But give Leslie Jones a solo Stagecoach Mary movie. Please. That would be incredible. And the other thing about Stagecoach Mary, there is this love triangle, unrequited love between Nat, between the character Nat Love and her and this kind of like back and forth. And they had this past. And there's also this uh, woman named Cuffy who definitely is in love with Mary Fields. Here's the thing. In real life, Stagecoach Mary would have much more have been inclined to go with Cuffy than that love. The stories of Stagecoach Mary and this particular woman who she spent a lot of time with, who she moved across states with, she moved to Alaska with, the writing was on the wall as to how she wanted to live her life and who she wanted to live her life with. And that is, again, something that they have not done. Anyway, I could talk about just that aspect for a long time, which I already have, but I'm not going to anymore. Long story short, give Leslie Jones a Stagecoach Mary movie, please. And make it a historical movie. If you're going to use historical figures, give them their real story because those stories are incredible. Delroy Lindo in this film plays Bass Reeves. Bass Reeves needs his own movie immediately and has needed his own movie. For a long time, a lot of people might be like, who who know the Bass Reeves story, might be like, oh, well, Django Unchained was kind of like Bass Reeves. Yeah, kind of, but not at all. So it just, I, this movie just straight out offended me repeatedly. 
by the choices they they were making and the characters they were choosing to do the things that they did in this movie. To give you an example of how ridiculous this concept is, this Avenger-style concept is, put it in perspective. Imagine doing a Civil War movie with real black historical figures. So you get Harriet Tubman, Frederick Douglass, Abraham Galloway, Robert Smalls teaming up to go after General Lee. That would be how ridiculous and stupid that concept would be. And yet, in the Old West, in this version, that was what he chose to do. Is his next project going to be a Civil War movie with historical figures coming together? Who knows? I hope not. But if it sounds ridiculous in that concept, it sounds even more ridiculous in reality of this movie. I, it, it just, it bothered me. It bothered me so much. So what I'm going to tell people to do is there are two books that I recommend you read. And as I've mentioned on other shows before, since, well, probably the beginning of this show, my dad is, has been a sociology professor and professor of African-American history and culture my entire life. He just retired last year, but has been a professor my entire life. These stories are stories that I have been hearing about and he has been researching. My dad has been researching for years. So yes, am I close to this or too close to this source material? Possibly. But anyway, two books that I recommend, Black Cowboys in the American West and Black Gun Silver Star. If you want to know some of the real stories of Black Cowboys, there are rich, multifaceted stories and true things that happened. Watching a movie like this, when again, James Samuel had an opportunity, a second opportunity to tell stories to, to an audience, I will say, to an audience that might not know who these folks are and this is the product that you put out there. And my fear is that if there is another movie about black cowboys in the old West, this is now what it is going to be compared to. And that is atrocious because black cowboys deserve so much better than what they got in the heart of they fall. Was it amazing to see an entire movie with black cowboys and not just black cowboys, black towns in the old West where it was all black. That was incredible. I loved seeing that. And if they had not had the names they had, if they had just made up names for all of these characters, I might have really, really enjoyed this movie. But he made a choice. They made a choice. The writers made a choice to do this and to name them what they named them. And that was a terrible decision. Yeah. Oof. I, 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 yeah. I could write a lot, of, lot more notes about that and talk more about it. But I'm not going to because... <laughs> Yeah, but I will say the performances were good. Like I mentioned, um, I hated the Moulin Rouge aspects of this movie. That there were like two different scenes where it was suddenly like a burlesque show. And I was like, what is happening? That was a weird choice. The anachronistic soundtrack was also a choice. Uh, not a choice that I would have made, but whatever. Anyway, all right, so it is on Netflix right now. Um, <laughs> the official rating system for this podcast, there are no stars, there are no letters, there are just three choices, good, bad, or ugly. A good film is something that you would recommend to a friend, a bad film is something that you're like, meh, it was okay, 
but you might not recommend it immediately. Ugly, avoid at all costs. I really, really debated my rating on this because as much as it offended me, the choices that they made and the characterizations that they did with these historical figures, immediately I was like, this is ugly. This is ugly. Like I, I, I was just mad watching it. The more I thought about it, the more I processed it, more black cowboys need to be seen in movies. If this is the way that folks need to get exposed to it, so that the next movie, which hopefully, just do a biopic. Like, do a biopic of any of these people. Maybe not Rufus Buck. He was only 18. Um, Cherokee Bill. I mean, Bass Reeves. Bass Reeves needs a TV show. An HBO 10-episode TV series. Anyway, but if this is the exposure that it takes to get people used to the idea that there were black cowboys, because a lot of folks like to pretend that there were not. You know who I'm talking about. My, my official rating, it has to be bad because, yes, it offended me. I liked some of the visuals. I liked seeing the Black Cowboys. I liked that. This is not a movie that I will go back and watch again. That is just me. Uh, but yikes. Yeah, so it is a bad. Um, there we go. Okay, moving along to the next one on our list, which is West Side Story. A movie that does not need any introduction, but I will introduce it anyway. This version is directed by Steven Spielberg, uh, who, you know, that guy, he's done a few things, a few things here and there. I think he is going to do okay. I think this young Steven Spielberg kid is going to be okay. Anyway, this movie is, again, a retelling of the 1961 movie, which is based off of the 1957 Broadway show of the same name. This is the Romeo and Juliet style story set in 1950s New York with the Puerto Rican Puerto Rican gang and the white gang for the most part like they are white they are Polish they are all of these things but whites versus the Puerto Ricans set in 1950s New York um who I had been excited about this movie for like 3 years when they first announced they were doing open auditions like, anybody could audition for this movie. Send in your stuff on Twitter. Send in your stuff. Like, an op when they said open casting, they truly meant open casting. And honestly, that is how they got the star, Maria, played by Rachel Zegler. She auditioned on Twitter. Like, she, sa she sang a couple things on Twitter, sent those in. They, of course, reached back out to her, did, an did a formal audition and all the things they needed to do. But there was a blanket open casting for this movie that was super exciting to me. I was like, okay, this is going to be something unique. This is going to be something different. I was excited. I was definitely excited. Um, and then, of course, this movie got delayed a full year because of COVID-19, as well as Ansel Elgort kind of getting caught up into Me Too stuff, um, which is why he has not been doing any press for this movie for a long time because Disney was not going to mess around with that. So... I will put this out there first, that West Side Story, the 1961 movie musical, is my favorite movie musical of all time, flat out. And I grew up watching so many movie musicals and performing in musicals and watching my sisters perform in musicals and watching my mom play the piano. Like, musical theater is huge for me. It always has been. Um, and West Side Story has been 
and I most likely, and it most likely will always be my number one movie musical of all time. It is brilliant and flawless. Um, it is also my number two favorite movie of all time, of any genre. My number two, my number one movie of all time, The Princess Bride. That movie, I doubt, will ever be shaken from its pedestal. Come on. Both of, both of those movies are damn near perfect. Um, anyway, okay. So with that said, West Side Story means a lot to me. Uh, more than I can accurately explain how much it means to me. In high school, when I was doing musical theater, I begged our drama teacher <laughs> to do West Side Story. And I was like, please, Jack, can we, can we just please do this? And Jack looks at me. And he was like, John, you're one of five brown kids in the entire school who does musical theater. We can't do West Side Story. And I was like, yeah, all right, that is fair. Um, that is absolutely fair because, I mean, yes, you can do it. And then the makeup gets in the way. It just, it would get weird. So he made the appropriate choice to not do it. But this movie, the, the original movie and the stage production mean a lot to me. I've seen the stage production several times. Um... Yeah, it means a lot. So going into this, I was super, super excited and very, very nervous as to how they're going to pull it off. Um, <laughs> and, oh boy. Uh, from, from the beginning, the beginning is already different than the original movie, which honestly is okay. People who remember the 1961 movie, they kind of forget <laughs> it takes about eight minutes to even get into the movie because they have the overture, which of course is a standard musical theater thing. Then they have the prologue the whole time. You're just watching the screen change colors with the backdrop of New York. Now, when you are sitting down for musical in musical theater, when you go to watch something and the overture starts playing, you're like, all right, cool. This sets the tone. This sets the mood. This gives me an idea of the music that is going to be involved in this. Cool. <laughs> the movie, the original movie is just eight minutes of a color-changing screen before the camera starts swooping over New York, before it starts coming in there, and then, of course, we start seeing the jets. And, you know, So it takes a while to get into it. This one, it did not do that. I mean, yes, it had the overture, but it went into things a bit more quickly. And when it went into things was when I started having a problem with it, within the first five minutes of the movie. And, and I was hoping that things would change, throughout the movie, and a couple things did. But in the beginning, when you start seeing these characters, and you start getting the introductions, and the music starts, and I know what is coming, and I know what, what is going to happen, and there is nothing. When I say nothing, there is no emotional punch. There is not a beat. There is not a moment of passion in that first opening number and I'm like, whoa, no, oh, this is going to be bad. <laughs> because it's just like, you, in musical theater, you have to start off, if, of course, depending on the genre of the musical theater you are doing, but that opening number, you need to get punched. You need to feel it. You need to like have something to be like, okay, this is where we are. This is who the characters are. This is what is going to happen. And you want to feel that. You want to get hit with that. And this was just hollow. I mean, it just... Yeah, it it was it was a very rough beginning. I will say, uh, Steven Spielberg, from his directing, 
Of course, the movie is, is shot well. It is Steven Spielberg. He knows how to shoot a movie. Like that, that part should not even be part of the discourse of this movie. Of course, it is shot well. I'm just going to leave that where it is. But here is the thing. The original movie in 1961, if you want to talk about things that were shot well, if you want to talk about a lot of those aspects, to put things in perspective, in 1961, when the original movie came out, it was nominated for 11 Oscars. 11. How many of those did it win? 10 of them. The only Oscar it did not win was Best Screenplay Based on Material from Another Medium. It was nominated and did not win. Other than that, it won 10 Academy Awards. When you talk about movies from the past, and people are like, and there are remakes of those coming out, and people are like, oh, but why mess with perfection? The original one was good. And we have that kind of nostalgia filter sometimes. This movie, the original movie, 1961, is almost literal perfection. In the sense of, in 1961 Academy Awards, it almost swept the entire award show. If you want to talk about messing with perfection, yeah, why? Why do this one? Why remake it? Other than a complete cash grab and to keep the film rights, which is a whole different reason why a lot of these remakes get made is because the studio can then keep the film rights because they have used their film rights to make a new product, therefore maintaining it for the next couple decades, which is ridiculous and offensive. Okay. Uh, <laughs> back to West Side Story 2021 version. Uh, I guess I should talk about the cast. Uh, like I said, Ansel Elgord and Rachel Zeg Zegler play Maria and Tony. Um, Ariana DeBose plays Anita. David Alvarez, Bernardo. And my favorite addition, of course, Rita Moreno as Valentina, a.k.a. the Doc in, in this version. Um, and she actually plays... Doc's wife and Doc passed away. That was actually a really, really nice way of them incorporating that that Doc character, which in the Romeo and Juliet play obviously is the priest uh, character that all of us know. So when she was cast as Doc, you know, we we're just like, all right, cool, whatever. However they want to work that out. It is Rita Moreno. She can do whatever the hell she wants. In this, they were like, oh, her name is Valentina. She is Puerto Rican. And Doc's store that was you know, their store together, Doc passed away, she took over the store, boom, 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 easy. Like, that transition, that explanation, it was all we needed. And I was like, all right, cool, done. Um, Some of the other major cast, I mean, are very, very well-known on stage, not so much known, you know, for, for theater, or not for theater, for movies, which is okay. That That is totally okay. When the 1961 movie came out, one of the only people who was really known was Natalie Wood. You know, a lot of the other folks were from the stage production of West Side Story. So the fact that they went with kind of just stage folks in this is great. If you're doing a movie musical based on a stage musical, why not get stage actors? Weird. Um, so Mike Faist, it is not Faust, but it is F-A-I-S-T. Faist, Feist, uh, plays Riff. And, I mean, he is a Tony-nominated actor. So, super solid. Um, Anita, uh, Ariana DeBose, like, all of them are very, very solid in their roles. The, uh, the, pro <laughs> the problems with this movie 
outweigh the things they tried to do better. And when I say try to do better, I mean that they, in the original one, obviously you have George Shakiris, who's playing Bernardo, who is Greek, not Puerto Rican, Greek. <laughs> uh, you have Natalie Wood, who was Czech, playing Puerto Rican. Okay, um, also not great. And so again, in this version, they're like, okay, we recognize that, we should change that. So Bernardo is played by David Alvarez, who his parents were Cuban, are Cuban. It's like, okay, we have a Latin person there. Cool. Box is checked. Got it. Uh, Maria with Rachel Zegler. They were like, okay, uh, she is Colombian. Her mom is Colombian. Cool. Latina. Check. Done. Uh, with Anita, with Ariana. Um, I think, let me see, actually. Let me pull it up because I... I did not actually look up. So Afro-Puerto Rican descent. Cool. And her mom is white. All right. So we got some Latin people in this movie with Latin people. And we go with a bunch of light-skinned, passable Latin people again. Except for Anita, you know, who, who is darker. And it was like, folks, you had so long to get this right. And recently with In the Heights, you know, that was another movie where Lin-Manuel Miranda they kind of had to put out a statement being like, yeah, sorry, we messed up. We should have cast darker-skinned people in this movie that takes place in Washington Heights, a major Puerto Rican neighborhood in New York City. They had to put out a statement about that. So it was like, folks, you are remaking West Side Story, and you did the minimal effort to cast Latinx people in these roles, and you still went with the lightest ones, the most passable ones, Again, I, 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 why? This is 2020. Like when this was filming, this is like 2019. These were conversations that have been happening for a while. Get it right. And, and they, they chose not to. One thing, speaking of Lin-Manuel Miranda, that they did do right is when this musical was relaunched on Broadway in 2009, uh, Lin-Manuel Miranda helped rewrite parts of it in Spanish. And so... There was heavy, heavy Spanish influence on that 2009 revival, and that carried through to this version, which was great. Like, there are whole sections of this in Spanish, no subtitles, no closed captioning, just the characters speaking in Spanish or singing in Spanish, and it was great. I loved hearing that. And if you do not speak Spanish, you can still follow along. You still get the tone. You still, it is not like you are watching a 10-minute dialogue or monologue in Spanish and you have no idea what is going on. It is very evident what is going on in those scenes when Spanish is being spoken, even if you do not understand Spanish. So I really, really liked that aspect. Um, they also kept in some of the original things from the stage production. So in the movie version, Tony and Riff, they're saying together, because they grew up together, was womb to tomb, birth to earth. In the stage production, it is womb to tomb, sperm to worm. That was something that changed in 1961 because they're like, Ugh, sperm to worm sounds gross. Who cares? It's 1961. Anyway, so they kept that in there. That was also nice. But as I was watching this, the whole time, I'm like, this is hollow. Nothing has an emotional weight. Nothing has a physical weight to it. The choices that they made were almost all the wrong choices. 
And if you're going to do a remake, why not try and do something original? Other And, and again, fans of this movie are going to be like, well, but they put in Spanish. Okay, cool. They did. But almost everything else was beat for beat similar. They Again, they went to some of the stage production for some of the the roles. Um, and they changed some of that. Like in the movie version, they changed uh, Diesel to Ice and things like that. But regardless of like some simple casting things, it just nothing has any weight. Watching the character, there are only a few moments where watching the characters emote actually felt real. And that that is just a shame because the actors themselves are solid. These are Tony-nominated actors in this. And it just it just did not feel heavy. It did not feel like there was substance behind it. And that just blew my mind. How how can you do this? And why would you do this? When the other when the original one is almost perfect. Uh it, it does not really make sense. Uh the choreography, they kept a lot of Jerome Robbins's choreography from the original one who also did the movie in 61 who also did the stage production like Jerome Robbins was uh, rest in peace was a legend in choreography uh so that was good but not great I did not care about any of these characters now was I comparing them to the 1961 version absolutely can I separate those two not really um <laughs> Could a better film critic separate those two? Possibly. But just these characters, it was just hard to like really find that connection. And speaking of character choices, something that I will never understand. Ansel Elgort as Elgort, as Tony, whoever decided to write the screenplay or modify the screenplay, uh, who writers, Tony Kirshner, okay, screenplay. Arthur, Arthur Lawrence, based on the stage play. Okay, so it's tough to figure out who made this decision. Maybe it was Steven Spielberg. Maybe I would just blame it on him. They made Tony, who is kind of our moral compass. He is one of he is somebody who like is a good guy. They made him serve a year. Like he had just gotten out of prison after serving a year in prison for almost beating a man to death. That was the choice they made. That was their original thing to be like, you know what? We need to give Tony some edge. Why? And if anything, his character arc in the original play and in the original movie is so much more relatable because he chose to, after living a life of violence, step away. He chose to step away and live a different life. In this one, they were like, he was so violent, he almost killed a man and spent a year in prison, and now his rage is right at the surface, and it could go off at any second. Like, why? Like, that was just offensive. And it makes no sense. I, it just Again, it just it made me mad watching it, that they made Tony this, like, hardened criminal, who then, when he does get into a fight, later in the movie, you see this rage building and you see Riff looking at Tony being like, oh my gosh, like I need to stop this. This is what he did last time. And it was, no, it was not what he did last time. He did not go to prison. He did not serve a year in prison and it was on parole. And they mentioned his parole several times. And it was like, what? Ugh. 
Um, I hated this movie. I I I hated almost everything they did with this movie. Some of the only redeeming factors. The way it was filmed, because again, duh. Steven Spielberg knows the film movie. The way it was filmed was good. The choreography was great. But nothing mattered. Nothing had weight. And the things that they did differently, the rare good choices they make are completely overshadowed by the terrible decisions they made. It just, I, oh, I hated it. Um, Rita Moreno, because she's Rita Moreno, and I will never say a bad thing about her, she is a living legend, a living icon. She was the first, first Latin person to win, win an Academy Award, Latin woman to win an Academy Award, I mean, it just like it, legend. They give her a reprise of the song somewhere in the third act of this movie as a solo, only because it is Rita Moreno, only because they were like, okay, we have this legend here. We need to give her a song. So they give it to her and it was like, okay, that was a choice. And I, and I liked that she had that, but it was also just like, it did not serve the movie. Um, it was just it was just nice to see Rita Moreno singing a solo. Uh, oof, yeah. Uh, my official rating for this. Um, I know people are going to see this. I know people are going to watch this because it's going to be on Disney Plus. I think pretty soon. Um, there is nothing that this movie does that is better than the original. There is not a frame in this movie. There is not... Again, casting Latinx people in these roles, that was a good choice. I will give them credit for that. But even those choices that felt like were, were also just hollow. So if you want to see this new movie, do not. Instead, watch the 1961 version. Or, better yet, go see it somewhere. Go see a touring production of it somewhere. Hopefully the 2009 revival version. Um... That was not the la the latest version that I saw, but yeah, I mean, I listened to that soundtrack. And anyway, um, I have seen high school productions where the actors had more chemistry together than in this movie. It, it was just, it was rough. It was really, really rough. So <sighs> I hate giving this an ugly, um, but but I have to. I will not watch this movie again. Um, when I feel the urge to watch West Side Story or listen to West Side Story, I'm going to listen to either the Broadway soundtrack or watch the 1961 version, which granted, most of the folks in the 19, a uh, few of the main folks in the 1961 version were not actually singing their parts, but that was very common for 1961. Shout out to Marnie Nixon for singing Natalie Wood's parts and did not get credit for 50 years. Anyway, that is a musical theater thing. Um, yeah, this is ugly. I have no intention to ever watch this again. Ansel Elgort as Tony was just miscast and not believable. Um, I did like David Alvarez and Ariana DeBose as Anita and Bernardo. That, that was a good, they, they were good together. I liked their chemistry together. Um, also shout out to Iris, uh, Iris Menace as anybody's. They did some interesting things with anybody's characters who is kind of the tomboy in the original production. 
Um, this one, they kind of flesh that out a little bit more, but not enough for it to matter more, if that makes sense. Anyway, okay, I'm done talking about that. It was ugly. Uh, avoid it. Watch the 1961 version. Go see a local production. Go see a touring production. Go see this somewhere else, and you will have a better experience than watching this garbage that has no weight emotionally or otherwise. Moving on to another musical. <laughs> uh, this one is on Netflix. This is Tick, Tick, Boom. Uh, this is based off of the play of the same name or kind of, uh, rock play written by Jonathan Larson, who is best known, um, outside of kind of the deep cut theater world as the creator of Rent, of the musical phenomenon Rent. So that was created by Jonathan Larson. This is a biographical, you know, musical film about his life. Uh, starring Andrew Garfield as the titular Jonathan Larson. Uh, we also have Alexandra Shipp as Susan, Robin DeJesus as Michael, Vanessa Hudgens, um, Joshua Henry, Jonathan Mark Sherman. A bunch of folks are in this movie. Uh, but Andrew Garfield, Alexandra Shipp, Robin DeJesus are, are the three main characters that we get to know the most, I would say. Um, how I spoke recently very recently about West Side Story and how it did not have emotional weight or punch. In this movie, you take Andrew Garfield, who had never really done something like this before, but Lin-Manuel Miranda in his directorial debut was like, okay, we're going to do this and I believe in you. So here we go. So Andrew Garfield was like, okay, you have faith in me. So, all right. Watching Andrew Garfield perform. And in some of this, of course, it is, it is a movie musical. So you have to do most of the singing in a studio after and then dub it in. Totally fine. That is how the industry works. But watching Andrew Garfield sing, even when it is dubbed with his own voice that he did in the studio later, you see his neck tighten. You see his face. You see him singing his ass off. And everyone else around him is singing their asses off. And you can see it in their face. Even if it was recorded later and then cut together, it does not matter. They're singing with passion every time. And so Jonathan Larson, when he was writing... Tick, Tick, Boom, and then it was later called Boho Days, about kind of his life of being a playwright, trying to survive in New York City and feeling the weight of running out of time and feeling the weight of, like, Stephen Sondheim wrote his first musical at 27. He is almost, Jonathan Larson is almost 30. Like, what is he doing with his life? Hence the Tick, Tick, Boom, like, waiting for that moment to be like, I'm wasting my time, I'm wasting my talents, by the time I turn 30, if I do not have a hit, what am I doing with my life? You feel that pressure. And Andrew Garfield portrays that phenomenally as Jonathan Larson. And uh, Robin DeJesus, who plays his best friend, you know, in this film, who, shout out to him, also originated the role of Sonny in In the Heights. Again, a stage legend. He plays Michael. Their chemistry is great. Like the friendship they have together when they sing together. I was, I was truly blown away by this movie. And I knew it was going to be super emotional for me because Rent means so much to me. In the past two musicals that I have talked about, West Side Story and 
now Tick, Tick, Boom, both of those are have characters in them, or rather, not Tick, Tick, Boom, but Rent. Um, West Side Story and Rent have two characters that I have always wanted to play on stage that I have not played yet. In West Side Story, I've always wanted to be either Bernardo or Tony. Tony was always a little bit out of my range. He has a high tenor. I'm a baritone. Um, but I've always wanted to play Bernardo. I think that would be amazing. Uh, probably never going to happen. That is okay. Especially if I if the choice between me and a Latinx person. Go with them. Anyway. But in Rent, I've always wanted to play Angel. And so these two <laughs> musicals mean a lot to me. So I knew going into this, when they first started announcing this movie, I was like, this movie is going to destroy me. And spoiler alert, it did. Um, this movie, again, has so much passion and so much just pain from these characters. I would say maybe one of the weaker spots, maybe, is Alexandra Ship as Susan. Her performance did not really push as much maybe as some of the other ones. Maybe the other ones were given more to do. It kind of goes back and forth. Um, uh, Michaela J. Rodriguez or MJ Rodriguez as Carolyn, uh, who works at the Moondance Diner with Jonathan Larson. She was great as well. But really what this movie is, what Tick, Tick, Boom is, is yes, it is a biographical musical film about Jonathan Larson. But truly what this is, in Lin-Manuel's directorial debut, is his love letter to the stage. Not just to the current stage of like, I want to bring Jonathan Larson's work to an audience that might not know that he ever did this. Because Jonathan Larson did several things that just people did not know. And then he did Rent, and that became a huge hit. But unfortunately, it became a huge hit after Jonathan Larson passed away. Um, so Lin-Manuel Miranda, when given the opportunity to do this, did this love letter to the stage that is just so palpable and so incredible that it just, it blew me away. It absolutely blew me away. When you talk about people from the stage who are legends, everywhere in this movie, when you turn, even in the background, even in shots that people do not even say anything, there are legends of the New York stage. Um, in every part of this movie, because Lin-Manuel Miranda was like, listen, I want to give as much respect to Jonathan Larson, and I want to give as much respect to musical theater and to the theater in general, so I'm going to pull out all of the stops and put everybody I can into this movie. And it works. When we get this incredible musical piece Sunday, based off of Stephen Sondheim, um, who Lin-Manuel Miranda loves, and of course, Stephen Sondheim did West Side Story, so there's a lot of connection there. You get this incredible set piece of the Moondance, uh, Moon, Moondance, uh, Moonlight Diner, um, as well as just, no, it is Moondance Diner. Yeah, Moondance Diner. Um, this incredible set piece with Legend of the Stage, and in reality, Jonathan Larson, when he performed this play of his, he always sang that by himself. And Lin-Manuel Miranda, in an interview, said that when he wanted to shoot that scene, he wanted to show it as if Jonathan Larson had the choir of his dreams. And so he packed this musical number with legends, including people who would eventually end up in Rent. You know, we have people there. It just, ugh, this, this punched me in the heart <laughs> so many times. 
while watching this. Uh, Boho Days is one of my favorite songs in the movie, and it is 90 seconds. And I feel like that might be one of the only ones that they recorded on set and used that audio. Again, a lot of times in filmmaking, you, you just cannot do that. Uh, they tried it with Les Mis, and we see how that went. But it, just, it is a lot harder. There are a lot more things to consider. But with Boho Days, it sounds like they recorded it live with everybody there. It had more passion in that 90 seconds, more passion, more feeling, more drive in a 90-second song with minimal lyrics than the two-and-a-half-hour new version of West Side Story. Um, it just... And that is one of the first songs. And again, like I was saying, it sets the tone. It sets the pace. And it gives you that feeling of this is a group of artists who are just trying their best to, to make it in New York in the 80s. Um, Michael, uh, Robin Jesus, he sings a song called Real Life that... It just broke me. Um, I thought I was going to cry watching West Side Story in the theater because of how much it meant to me. That sadness that I could have felt watching it with tears was just replaced with anger and bitterness while watching it. Um, watching Tick, Tick, Boom, I figured I was going to cry or at least get emotional. It destroyed me. <laughs> I mean, I have not cried in a movie. How does, Actually, the last one's In the Heights. Um, with Paciencia y Fe, the way that they did Paciencia y Fe in, in the Heights in the movie version destroyed me. And I, I definitely cried in the theater. Um, watching Tick, Tick, Boom at home. Oof. Yeah. Uh, it was, it was incredible. It, it truly, truly was incredible. Um, and there are touches and notes from Rent all over this from subtle moments to important visuals to important sounds. Um, there's a scene with Alexander Ship when they are up on the roof and, you know, she hands him his jacket or hands, hands him her jacket. Even that simple moment, of course, brings you back to rent, you know, and it just, it was incredible. This is a love letter passion project that actually works. And I say that because a lot of filmmakers, when they get the opportunity to do a, a passion project, that is what it becomes. It becomes a passion project, but not something that really resonates with a lot of folks. This was Lin-Manuel Miranda's passion project and dedication to the life and work of Jonathan Larson. And it was incredible. Uh, yeah, Andrew Garfield, from not coming from a true musical theater background. And one of the things that Manuel Miranda, Lin-Manuel Miranda said to him was like, Jonathan Larson himself was not the greatest singer. You do not need to be Tony-nominated, Tony-winning level of a singer, but sing with passion. Sing with soul. And he did, and it worked. Uh, Vanessa Hudgens, I mean, obviously, comes from a huge musical theater background. So she was great in this and the parts that we get to see her. I mean, yeah, it just, it just blew me away. Absolutely blew me away. My official rating for, for Tick, Tick, Boom is good. Uh, and Netflix in their awards uh, for your consideration box that they sent me this year. They sent me a sweater. They sent me the soundtrack. They sent me a bunch of stuff from it uh, before I had even seen the movie. And I was like, all right, cool, whatever. I get this stuff all the time from the studios. Um, wow. Yeah. Truly, truly incredible movie. Tick, tick, boom. Um, okay. So, whoo, recap. Uh, the Heart of a Fall. 
I gave a bad two, which I forgot to write in my notes. Normally I write that so that I can remember at the, at the end of the show. Uh, bad. So I got a bad. Uh, West Side Story. Uh, I kind of hate giving it this, but it got an ugly. And then Tick, Tick, Boom got a good. Uh, just so it ran the gamut. You get one of each one of my ratings on this show. If this is your first show, congratulations. Uh, you did it. You made it through an hour of me talking about movies that I am passionate about, especially musical theater movies. Um, yeah, uh, so there we go. Make sure to subscribe, rate, and review the podcast on your podcast platform of choice. Uh, about to review on all social media channels, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, aboutreview at gmail.com if you want to send me an email, and aboutreview.com for full links to the show notes. Um, yeah, thank you. Thank you so much for listening to, to this podcast. It truly means a lot, especially when I do take some breaks like I had to do just for some mental and physical health. Coming back and doing this means a lot to me, and I'm so grateful for the opportunity to be able to do this and to be able to have this platform and talk to you folks. So thank you. Uh, when you do listen to this, if you want to leave me any messages on social media, go for it. I read them all, even the ones that people disagree with me on. Those are usually my DMs, not so much on, <laughs> on the actual page, but it happens almost every time. So thank you so much for listening. I have been your host, that guy named John, and we will see you next time. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby. Let's all go to the lobby to get ourselves a